You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Have you ever paused to consider the word martyr? I kind of feel like we need to sing all to Jesus, I surrender. The Oxford Dictionary defines the word martyr as a person who is killed because of their religious or other beliefs. Merriam-Webster, an American dictionary, refines that definition to include a person who voluntarily suffers death as the penalty of witnessing and refusing to renounce a religion. The word martyr goes much, much deeper than the word witness or testify. In our legal system, a person may be punished with a fine and or imprisonment for falsely testifying under oath. But in both of the English definitions, we pick up on something that was in the original Greek meaning of the word. Death. A pair of Greek experts who studied all of the synonyms of the language list the word martus, from which we get the word martyr, as number seven in a list of 27 different words to describe killing or killer. It's not just the matter of talking about. It's not just the matter of being persecuted for talking. It, at the core of the word martus is the idea of death. And today's sermon tells us the story of the first Christian martyr, a man by the name of Stephen. As I look at Stephen, I see, first of all, that there is significance to Stephen. What makes Stephen unique? What makes him significant to us? 
Well, the first thing I see is that he was a dedicated layman. He was not one of the 12 who had been called by Christ and set apart. After the 12 became overworked, the scripture tells us that they appointed six men to assist the elders or the apostles. These six men to make sure that the benevolence ministry of the church was carried out fairly and equitably. If you look back at chapter 6, the, the um, previous chapter to what we're looking at this morning, you will see that Stephen was a man who was respected. He was a man who was full of the Spirit and a man who was full of wisdom. And Stephen, along with five others, were set apart by the twelve for the ministry of benevolence. And when these six, who were well-respected, were set apart for benevolence ministry, the whole gathering, the whole church, was pleased with these six men being elevated to this position, of which Stephen was one. I think that the the people saw this as a win-win situation. The apostles were allowed to continue in their ministry of prayer and the word, and the needs of the people were met because they were spreading out the workload to additional workers. The leaders stayed in their sweet spot, and new people were raised up for participation in the Christian message. Not only was he a dedicated layman, but I also see that he was a Hellenistic Jew. What makes a Jew Hellenistic? Helen is the Greek word for the Hellenist. And it is a person of the Greek language. The person of this Greek language All six of the names are not Hebrew names. The six names of the men who were assigned to the benevolence ministry were Greek names, not Hebrew names. They were Jewish believers, but they spoke the Greek language, so they were called Hellenistic Jews. See, if I told someone that the names of our elders, this is not what they are, but if I said the names of our elders are Jose, Felipe, Pablo, Raul, Ernesto, and Alejandro, what might you conclude about our church? That there was some Latin connection with our church and these people. And so as these six are chosen, they're not traditional Hebrew names like Jacob and Joseph and Esau and Matthew, and they're Greek names. And so what's happening here in the book of Acts is the 12 apostles that spoke Aramaic, the traditional Jewish language, is now spreading out to those who speak a different language And we will see in the next chapter, it's spreading outside of the city limits. And then we will see it is spreading to Gentile people. So the fact that Stephen is not 
a Hebrew Jew, but a Hellenistic Jew, is a hint to us that the gospel message is beginning to spread to other cultures that are around them. The 12 who are named in Acts chapter 1 are all Hebrew names. But the body of leadership is now integrating six with different cultural background. He was a dedicated layman. He was a Greek layman. And these next words are about to get me in trouble with some of you. The mission was being entrusted to progressives. Now, I'm not talking about political progressives. I'm talking about those who looked at their culture and wanted to move forward. Instead of looking back to the Hebrew, they were looking forward to the common trade language that was being used all around them. Um, It is one thing for me to go to Mexico and expect the locals to speak English. It's quite another thing for me to live in Mexico and never learn Spanish. And it's even more difficult to reconcile how Texans would continue to speak Spanish after the territory became part of the United States. There was a shift that happened from Spanish towards English. And the same type of a shift is happening in the Holy Land as the book of Acts is playing out in front of us. Because in the language that was spoken by ancient Jews... We have a a continuum from Hebrew to Aramaic to Yiddish to English. See, Hebrew was the language that was spoken by Abraham's descendants. And the Hebrew language remained distinct even during the Egyptian years. When Abraham's descendants were taken away to Egypt to find food and then to become slaves, they continued to maintain their Hebrew distinction by speaking that language. But this Hebrew language then got adapted and twisted during the Babylonian captivity. When Babylon took over and the exiles were taken away, all of a sudden their Hebrew got influenced by the culture and became Aramaic. Now, Hebrew and Aramaic overlap um, just like in English that is spoken by a California surfer dude, a Louisiana shrimper, or a Maine salesman. It's all the same language. But a surfer dude probably can't understand the guy on the shrimp boat. And the guy on the shrimp boat may or may not be able to understand the mainer. But it's all the same language. It just got influenced. And Hebrew got influenced so that Aramaic is very close to Hebrew. But it's just different enough to tell that it was influenced. In the same way, the Hebrew language morphed into what is called Yiddish when Jews were exiled to Germany. When Jews left the Holy Land and moved into Europe, they developed a language 
that was close to Hebrew, but was a little bit different. So, for example, in biblical Hebrew, vowels are not written. It's just the consonants, and you have to figure out if it was sit or sat. You have to figure out if it was sit, sat, or sat. And because the vowels were not written in the language. However, in Yiddish, they did use characters to write the vowels. So, in Hebrew, we would have the name Yahweh. Y-H-W-H. In Yiddish, it becomes Jehovah. Because the vowels are actually spelled into the word. And so, um, Hebrew to Yiddish is just like Yahweh to Jehovah. There's an overlap, but they are distinct. And in this time, we have the language that is beginning to change. And there are some people that want to hold on to the old Hebrew way of things. There are other believers who are saying, the world around us is changing. We've got to get ready to head in that direction. And interesting enough, Luke, who wrote this book, wrote it in... Greek. He did not write the book of Acts in Aramaic. Aramaic was a common uh, spoken language in one, commu- in one part of the community, but Greek was the bigger trade language that was used. So Stephen was a Jew who, with, who, with a Greek name, but he was still able to speak to the Jewish religious leaders about their common ancestry. He was a Jew, even though he spoke a different language. But because he spoke this different language, Stephen was accused of leading a rebellion. And when he was accused of leading a rebellion, because he's one of those new speakers... He responded with a familiar yet modified understanding of their common history. In verses 2 through 50, we have the story that Stephen told to the religious leaders. The story that he tells begins talking with their land. The Jewish religious leaders loved the land that God had given. And yes, God gave that land to Israel... But the story that Stephen says is, even though God has given us this land, just bear with me for a moment. Do you think God might be big enough to deal with people beyond this land? And so he was not denying that the land belonged to the Jewish people. He was simply saying, God is not limited to our borders. And Stephen says, God just might be able to do something beyond the land of our own people. The um, true Hebrews, those who were trying to preserve their history, those who were trying to preserve their language, they they were threatened by these Greek speakers. They said, we're going to lose our identity if we start speaking that language. But Stephen says, all right, yeah, I speak the language, But might it be that God is big enough to work beyond our boundaries? As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, you know, God called our father Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia. Chapter 7, verses 2 through 8. And then God called our father Abraham to go to Haran. So, 
our God used our father outside of our land. The people did not respond too well for that. Stephen reminds them that God is not limited by our narrow boundaries. And the times that we try to say this is the way God works, sometimes, according to Stephen, we need to step back and say, you know, God may just have a bigger picture than what I am looking at. That's why we are committed to world evangelization. And a portion of every dollar given into offering here goes to the world because we believe God is redeeming all people from all lands. But Stephen does not hold his views just to the land. He goes on to talk about the law that was given because the religious leaders took great joy and great pride in their law and their understanding of the law. So when it came to their law, Stephen says, yes, I believe that we have all of the commands of Torah. However, um, guys, do you remember how our own people rejected Moses? Verses 35 through 39. Moses came down off the mountain with the tablets and what were our people doing? Worshiping a golden calf. He goes on to say in verses 40 through 43 of chapter 7, hey, hey guys, do you remember how our people chased after false gods? So yes, yes we have God's rules. I, I know that God gave us these rules, but remember, our own people disregarded Moses. Our own people chased after false gods. And then when we get to uh, chapter, verse 43 at the last part, the Babylonian exile, when Judah was taken away to Babylon, it softened their resolve. Because the people what, that began with Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they said, we will not turn our back on our God, we will preserve our God's ways. By the end of that 70-year captivity, all of a sudden the Hebrew language has become Aramaic. They have adopted to the culture around them so that Aramaic was the spoken language when Christ walked upon the earth. And so we're seeing a subtle shift as they are adjusting. So Stephen simply says, yes, I know where we have been. I know what our rules say. I know the way that you understand our rules but I'm just pointing out there have been times where we understood our own rules differently. As a matter of fact, um, Stephen basically reminds the high priest that their people had not always agreed on their current understanding of the rule of law. Just as someone today may point out that democratic talking points include things that Democrats opposed historically. And Republicans seem to be against some of the things that they used to be for. And so Stephen is simply reminding them that the application of the law and the obedience to the prophets had been hit or miss in their own history. You can imagine how well that went. Hey, guys, remember how God works beyond our borders? Hey, guys, remember how we didn't always get it right? And then he goes on to hit the 
third pillar of Jewish uh, religious life, and that is with the temple. Their temple was the center of their identity. And Stephen says, guys, just as God might work beyond our borders, do you think God might reveal his glory beyond our temple? And to them, that, that was sacrilege. How dare you say that God might be involved apart from our temple? In verse 47, we read that Solomon built a temple to replace the tabernacle. Verses 48 through 50 tells us that God continued to rule over his people even when Solomon's temple was destroyed. And Stephen is simply saying, actually, God will continue to rule even when this second temple is destroyed. Little did they know it would happen within 10 years of when this book was written. Because Luke wrote this book about 20 years after the events happened, and within 10 years of Luke writing Acts, Jerusalem was destroyed. And so Stephen was a prophet. He says, God has been able to work when we only had a tent. God was able to work when we had Solomon's temple. God continued to work even when Solomon's temple no longer existed. And newsflash, God will continue to be God even if this temple goes away. And to people whose identity was wrapped up in their land, their law, and their temple, they did not like this millennial talk coming from this new guy from the new millennium. It is abundantly clear that the religious leaders do not like Stephen's spin on their own history. So the next eight verses talk not about the significance of Stephen, not about the story of Stephen, but the next eight verses talk about the stoning of Stephen. We have the religious leader's response to Stephen's story. The stoning happens because Stephen says, as sinners, we're guilty. Verses 51 through 53. After recounting thousands of years of, guys, our people did not always get it right, Stephen then reveals an inconvenient truth. After saying, our people have not always done it right, Stephen says, and neither do you. They did not respond real well to that. Now, I don't read these verses as Stephen being angry or judgmental. I don't think Stephen is saying, by the way, guys, you are the most evil, vile, wicked people of all time. I simply see Stephen saying, guys, we haven't always got it right, and we're continuing to make the same mistake that our ancestors made. It's time that we turn to God and stop making the same old mistake over and over again. He spoke the truth. As sinners, we are guilty. That's not meant to belittle. It's not meant to humiliate. It's simply meant to expose a need that needs to be addressed. 
Yesterday I had the privilege of teaching through our statement of things that we believe as a church. And there are some things within our statement of faith that society at large may not agree. They are free to disagree with us, but if they do, they will bear the consequences of that choice. And Stephen says, we are guilty of this. You're, con- you're free to continue in, in, in mistreating God, but you will bear the consequences of it. It doesn't do you any good for me to lie to you about the results of your behaviors. And it doesn't do any good for us to lie to our neighbors about what the Bible has said is the outcome of certain behaviors. You know, I... I, I The very last statement of our statement of faith kind of sets our tone. It says, we are not hateful, we are not angry, we are not fearful of people who disagree with us. We simply wish for their own good that they would embrace what God has revealed in his word. They're free to make their own choices, but we wish they would make different choices. And so we offer that alternative in an attractive and a pleading way. I I titled this sermon today, Service Meets Sacrifice. Because I believe Stephen was serving the people, serving their best interest. He was truly loving them when he confronted them with the truth, even if they didn't want to hear it. This was motivated by love, not by anger, hate, or fear. Not only do I see that his stoning was uh, surrounding guilty people, but his stoning included the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God himself was present as he was being stoned. Sometimes God comforts us in the midst of conflict, Even though the people around him were enraged, according to verse 54, by the time Dr. Luke gets around to recording these events that were inspired by the same Holy Spirit that was present at Stephen's stoning, Stephen sees a vision of his reward. He sees a vision of his Savior. He sees a vision of his God. And the same spirit who was present with Stephen in the midst of all of that rage is the same spirit that inspired Luke to write the story for us. Yes, there was great guilt, but yes, there was the presence of the Spirit of God. Our prayer list contains many who are burdened with emotional, relational, spiritual, and physical burdens. And though our faith strengthens sometimes and wavers at others, most of us could testify of how God's Spirit has ministered to us in the midst of enraged circumstances. Just because things are not pleasant does not mean the Spirit is not present. Sometimes He gives us a peace that surpasses all human understanding i see guilty sinners i see a present spirit and finally in verses 57 through 59 i see that this stoning was fatal 
just as the Romans knew dead and Jesus was truly dead when they laid him in the tomb, the early church knew dead. They had witnessed it with Ananias and his wife in chapter 5. And they are now seeing it again at the end of chapter 7. As witnesses becomes a martyr for the first time since the resurrection. And I also notice that this stoning of Stephen that left him dead was observed by, by several, according to the story. Because the religious court rushed towards him and took him to the edge of town. The witnesses took off their coats that were attended by a young man named Saul. So I see three different groups of people who are seeing and observing and witnessing this stoning. And if only 20 years has passed between these events and the time that Luke records it, there were probably still witnesses alive who could debunk this account if it were not true. Yes, today we have some who deny the lunar landing was actually on the moon. But men have been there since and found the evidence that we had been there previously. There are those who questioned who killed Kennedy. But there's no denying that something happened in Dallas on November 23, 1963. There are some who surmise some conspiracy on this date 21 years ago. But there's no denying the pile of rubble. And in the same way, within 20 years, there were people who could have debunked the story if Luke's account is not true. But because there were many witnesses, he was dead. He wasn't just persecuted. He wasn't just imprisoned. He wasn't just beaten. He was left for dead. Likewise, there is no historical doubt that Stephen was stoned to death. And while death is never pleasant, in Stephen's case, as in all who know the Lord and serve him faithfully, Stephen's death is not described in gruesome terms. Stephen's death is described beautifully as the sleep of Stephen. As he enters into a sleep, I see Stephen crying out words that are a shadow of Christ's very words when Christ was on the cross. The shadow that I see is cast by the phrase where Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they do. And then they cast lots to divide his garments. And just as Jesus hung upon that cross and said, Father, forgive them, Stephen is receiving the stones and he looks up to heaven and he says, Do not hold these sins against them. That is a spiritual presence that empowers a person in the midst of the most excruciating opposition to be able to say, God, don't hold it against them. This is why I say this is selflessness meets sacrifice. 
Because the testimony of Stephen crosses over to sacrifice. It, it, it cost him dearly. But I've also labeled it as selfless because Stephen had the self-interest of others at the very core of his motivation. He had an absence of any sense at all of malice. He was motivated by selflessness and kindness. I don't know if I could have that level of selflessness. I know that in some parts of the country, um, if someone acts hurtfully, they may be uh, told, well, bless your heart. Honestly, I'm not a bless your heart kind of person. See, if, if Stephen's response is way over here, Lord, don't hold it against them. And, and then bless your heart is somewhere here in the middle. Don't hold it against them. Turn the other cheek. Bless your heart. I might be moving a little bit more towards, um, Lord, you get them. And to be honest, sometimes it is, Lord, thank you for making me an instrument of your righteousness in correcting this wrong. See, in that, in that continuum, Stephen has a total absence of malice towards those who are around him. And I believe the reason Stephen is able to respond with that compassion and that absence of any malice is that he recognized that their hostility was an indication of a spiritual warfare. Jesus was able to say, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing because Jesus recognized his death was part of a much bigger spiritual plan. His death was bigger than the priest. His death was bigger than the Romans. His death was part of a bigger plan. And Stephen is able to say, Lord, do not hold these sins against them because he knew his conflict with the uh, religious leaders was much bigger than his own life. The conflict between the resurrectionist was not going to come to an end if Stephen's life came to an end. As a matter of fact, I say that, you know, there are many, many times where we don't know how God is going to use the situation for a greater plan. But we can have the assurance of Job in the Old Testament that God is using this for a greater plan. We may not know how, but we can trust that there is a greater purpose at work. We don't always get to see the completion of that greater plan. Peter and John testified in public, even though it meant imprisonment and beating. Stephen testified in public, even though it meant a painful, slow execution. And so my question for us, Chase County 2022, to what extent are we willing to demonstrate selflessness for the cause of the cross? Is our comfort more important to us than his call? Do we have a similar surrender as Stephen did? 
Are we willing to surrender all to Jesus? Our song of response is one that we, we sang a couple years ago, but we haven't sung for the last couple years. It's a song that is a testimony that I could just stay right here where it's comfortable. But God has called me to something higher. God has called me to something deeper. If your desire is to follow the Lord in that calling, I invite you to stand.